So, yes! <laughs> Sisters are like, Father, I've seen this 500 times. <laughs> and we're, we're going to talk about sin. Okay. All right. Okay, so... So we're going to talk about um, the story of salvation in our story. So this is a way of, like, how do we proclaim the gospel, right? And so it goes like this. God created the world, and everything was good. Then something happened, and things became distorted, right? And I talked already about how we describe distortion, okay? And how the family here was mom, dad, natural children. The family in the period of distortion is the family of Israel, Right? Jacob, his four wives, his twelve children, who all hated their brother and threw him in the cistern. Then something else happened. Jesus enters into the distorted world so that he can bring clarity, we can grow in virtue, and eventually enter into the kingdom of heaven. Right? At the beginning of the story of salvation, we have a marriage between Adam and Eve. At the end of the story of salvation, we have a marriage or the wedding feast of the Lamb in the book of Revelation. In the center of this book of sacred scripture, we have the Song of Songs, which helps us to put our relationship with God within the context of a marriage. So marriage is this theme that flows throughout sacred scripture. And so when we talk about, okay, what was it like when things were good? We say, Genesis 1.27 says, we're created in the image of God. Male and female, he created him. So then we have the famous Trinity. This is fatherhood. He wills the good for the son. The son responds to that by entrusting his life to the father. The Holy Spirit is the fruitfulness of the love between the father and the son. Pope Benedict says the father's identity is to be for the son. So if you say, who are you? He says, I am the person that's for the son. If you say, who are you to the son? He says, I am from the father. Whoever sees me sees the father. Don't you know that I'm in the father and the father is in me? As the father sent me, so I send you. Father, let them share in the glory that I had with you from the beginning. The son is from the father. And the Holy Spirit is with the Father and the Son. Okay, so when we look at the being with identity, it's sort of like, okay, now we're going to step back and look at this as a relational whole. And the Holy Spirit represents that being with the Father and the Son. God created us in His image, and so in original solitude, That first relationship that exists is the one between God and man. God wants the good for Adam. Adam recognizes God doesn't want me to die, so he entrusts himself to God and everything's good. Not good for the man to be alone, so I'll make him a suitable helpmate. He sees his wife, he has the at last moment, and now he's able to love her with the love he has received from the Father. She's able to entrust her life to him. And when that happens in its completeness, as we talked about in the last hour, a third person comes forward. Then something happened. Right? So what happens in original sin? Right? In original sin, we have this temptation. And the serpent comes and says to Eve, Did God really say that you can't eat from any of the fruit in the garden? So, temptation is always about distorting. And it's always about a lie. Okay, so the serpent from the beginning starts with a lie. Did God really say you shall not eat from any of the trees in the garden? And this is the same temptation that we all go through. It's the same temptation that your kids all go through when they say to you, you don't let me do anything. (laughs) We can't have any fun. We can never play. It's a distortion and an exaggeration. The woman answers, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but it's only the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden that God said, You shall not eat it or even touch it or you'll die. And then the snake says to the woman, You certainly will not die. Again, it's a lie. 
God knows well that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like gods who know the good and the evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and the tree was desirable for gaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate of it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Okay, so what does this temptation do? This temptation casts doubt on the fact that God wants the good for you. It casts doubt on the fact that God wants the good for you. That's every temptation. Every temptation in our lives starts by planting the seeds of doubt about the fact that God wants the good for you. Okay, so sidebar commentary on why it's the woman. (laughs) Because there's lots of commentaries on this, and people say one thing, people say another thing. You know, sometimes people say, well, the man didn't man up, and if he manned up, like, his wife wouldn't have done that. Okay, fine. Fine. Um, I think men should man up, but I don't think we should just, like, make up excuses to tell men to man up. Why is it the woman? Because in her body, she represents all of creation. Okay, in her body, she represents all of creation. Because in the prophets, God says, I will be a husband to you again, speaking to all of Israel. And so the people of God are always in the place of the bride. The new Jerusalem is the bride. The church is the bride of Christ. So in her femininity, she represents all of creation in relation to God. So why is it the woman? Because she represents all of creation in relation to God in her femininity. She represents her and her husband in relation to God and her femininity. So it's not because women are gullible. It's not because anything like that. Right? And we say those things jokingly, but there's something profound about the fact that she represents all of creation in relation to God and her femininity. Would it be correct to say that they were in complete harmony with creation up to this point and but never knew sin. So at this point when evil comes into the garden, um, I mean, they were at harmony with all creation. Why would this creature lead them astray? Uh, because none of the creatures did. Um, of course, they sinned through pride, disobedience. But is that, would that, be, would that be correct to say? I mean, wouldn't she have been naive to evil to up to this point? Um, there's always a certain amount of naivety to evil. I think anytime we go down this road, we're always speculating about what could have happened, and we're always trying to find a way of like putting our own experience into the thing. And so there was harmony with all of creation up until the fall. Um, the reason that I put this narrative on it is very specific. Um, because the and the temptation is about casting doubt about the fact that God wants the good. Like she knows that God wants the good, but then this like thought comes in, or this idea comes in that God doesn't want the good for me. Now the reason that I use this narrative, I'm gonna once I get through the whole thing, then I'll go back and reflect on um, because this narrative I think is more easily accessible to the people we're trying to reach in the modern world. Um, so the serpent casts doubt on the fact that God wants the good. Then if I don't believe that God wants the good for me, okay, because we're still in this relational dynamic, somebody has to want the good for me to entrust my life. If I don't believe he wants the good for me, I cannot entrust my life. Okay, if I doubt this person wants the good for me, I can't entrust my life. Right, if kids doubt their parents want the good for them, they can't really entrust their life. Okay, if I doubt the bishop wants the good for me, it becomes really difficult for me to entrust my life. And so that disobedience comes in response to the doubt that somebody wants my good. 
and I have no choice but to declare my autonomy. And I'm going to take care of myself. Okay, remember when we talked about attachment yesterday, right? If nobody's trustworthy in my life, then I have to take care of myself. People aren't trustworthy, so I don't need people. And then there's this experience of loss of sonship. Okay, because I declare my autonomy, I lose my identity as a son or a daughter. My identity as a son or a daughter comes from the fact that I know this person wants my good. So there's this original loss or break with God. That happens first. It precedes all other sin. Then what happens? It interferes with the relationship between men and women. Because if I don't believe that I'm loved as a son or a daughter, then I cannot give to somebody what I don't have. And so now I cannot want the good for my wife. And also, if God's not trustworthy, she can't be trustworthy. And I become resistant to, I doubt her trustworthiness. And there's this void in my life because... There's this space in my life where God's supposed to be and he's not there because I've evicted him from my heart. But now when I see this woman, I'm going to try to fill up the void in my life with her. If God's not trustworthy, this man can't be trustworthy. And there's this void in her life. And when she sees the man, she doesn't see somebody that she wants to entrust her life to, but somebody that maybe can like fill up the void in her life. And instead of giving, there's this tendency to use or grasp or fill up the void in my life. And that relationship becomes severed. Right? Yesterday, I talked about those four phenomenological dimensions of love, which were carnal, emotional, personal, religious. So now, when... I have this void in my life and I see the woman, I only see her for her carnal value. Because that can fill up what's missing in my life. Or when she sees him, she maybe only sees him for her, his emotional value. And that's where these four dimensions which are supposed to be integrated start to become separated out. When I say men only see for carnal, women only see for emotional, it's a stereotypical expression. I know that it's not universal, but it's what people tend to struggle with more. Okay, so first there's this loss of sonship, then the rupture in spousality. Now, this goes to the question from yesterday that somebody asked when I said that all sins against unchastity start with a rupture between man and God. Okay, they start with a rupture between man and God. Because the first thing that happened was back here. I doubt God wants the good for me. I have to take care of myself. And now that leads into sins of unchastity here. Okay, when we talk about chastity with our young people, our tendency can be to start with this diagram in the red. This is how we do it. This is what we do. We put the boys on this side of the room. We put the girls on this side of the room. We go to the girls and we say, you are princesses in the kingdom of heaven and you are so beautiful and God loves you so much and you have to protect yourself and be modest because boys, they're kind of pigs and they're really visual and you have to be modest to protect yourself from the boys because they're going to use you. We tend to say that. And then we go to the boys and we say, you guys are pigs! You better protect those princesses. And it comes off that way. I'm being a little bit sarcastic, but not too sarcastic. Because essentially we go to the boys and we say, you guys are visual and you can't control yourselves and so you need to like control yourself and... You know, protect yourself from them. And so what are we doing when we're trying to educate about chastity? We're starting with this like dimension of sin, and so we create fear. 
And so modesty doesn't become about protecting and preserving the gift. It becomes about being afraid of being used. And when modesty is about a fear of being used, it interferes with healthy marriages. Okay, it's only been since I've been in college that there's been this huge push in the purity culture in both the Catholic and Protestant worlds. And right now, a lot of people are starting to write about this and how the purity culture is like causing difficulty in marriages for Christian people. Because the union between a man and a woman is a beautiful thing, and it's a gift. And it becomes very difficult to go from protect myself, protect myself, protect myself, boys use me, boys use me, boys use me, boys use me. Now I'm supposed to be wide open and ready to go. But how do you go from this defensive posture to a giving posture? And it's causing a lot of difficulty. Like There's a blog post that's called like How Joshua Harris Ruined My Marriage. Joshua Harris wrote a book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. He's this advocate of, like, don't kiss until you're married. And then people are expected to go from no kissing to, like, and sexual intimacy is only for making babies. And so, like, it becomes very difficult for them. So, and that's where love and responsibility is very specific. John Paul II is very specific about the intimacy between a man and a woman and the importance of that and the importance of that gift and the importance of the bond that's formed. And, um, and he's very specific about it um, with all of the biological details. And, uh, and we kind of like lose that in this posture of protection. Right? So what should we be proclaiming? Like we need to proclaim the boys just as much as the girls. Like you are sons of the father. You, know, you are children of God. And you are children of God. Purity is found in this lived relationship with God. Okay, purity is a lived relationship with God. It's not a protective posture against sin. It's a lived relationship with Christ. So there's this evangelical organization called Pure Hope, and they are run by Kimberly Hahn's father. Most of you know Kimberly Hahn. And their whole message about purity is purity is a lived relationship with Christ. It's not about like protecting myself from other people. Because if I'm in this lived relationship with Christ, then it's Christ who answers the longings of my heart. If I find my fulfillment in Christ, then I don't have this void that needs to be filled up by a boy or this void that needs to be filled up by a girl. Because the cure for original sin is always going to be redemption, and redemption is about restoring our identity as children of God. Right? Christ died on the cross to restore our identity as children of God. The fathers of the church say, you are sons in the Son. St. Paul constantly talks about being sons and daughters of God. Anytime in St. Paul's writings where he refers to sins against impurity, just before that, if you look for it, talks about you are children of God. Right? It's always in there. So, in that sense, like that's what needs to be proclaimed, because that's where it gets cured. It doesn't get cured by don't look at them with lust. Like We need to not look at them with lust. But, that's not the gospel proclamation. The gospel proclamation is that you find your fulfillment in Christ. Yeah? I'm just sitting here realizing something. If you go back to chivalry, the basis for chivalry is being a son and daughter of God. Right. Yep. And we've lost that. In the church's language, we've lost that too. Because we don't preach on it enough. Like we preach on healthy marriage looks like this. Last night I was on this marriage webinar and I'm really... Never mind. I was talking about it earlier. I was kind of fired up about it. Because they only had me on there to like plug Covenant and I, so I'm going to call them and say, I don't work for Covenant and I, and I know more about marriage than these other people on the webinar. But the webinar turned into like... The webinar turned into like just plugs for organizations. And it was all about, you know, 
they were talking about marriage, but like what's unhealthy in our society is actually sonship and daughterhood. Like we're not going to fix marriages by just giving people better communication skills and helping them be unselfish. We're going to fix marriages by restoring family life. You know, the church has been saying since 1981 that remote marriage preparation is the most important stage of marriage preparation. Remote marriage preparation takes place between conception and dating. Proximate marriage preparation takes place in the dating period to engagement. Okay, and then immediate marriage preparation takes place and in the engagement period. But, and, but what does the church say? The church says we need to focus on remote marriage preparation, which means we need to focus on relationships within family life. Because that's where we learn what love is. And that's the most important thing, to prepare somebody for marriage. The most important marriage preparation program takes place in the domestic church. It doesn't take place in my office or in here or on Engaged Encounter. Now, those things are good, but the most important phase of marriage preparation takes place in the domestic church. No, it's not here. No, which is why it's not unheard of or unfounded. It might be, un- might be unusual. If we start making parents go to parenting classes as their kids are coming to our schools and CCD programs. And those parenting classes aren't like there to say you're a bad parent. They're there to like help the parent to know their vocation and help the parent to be the primary teachers about love in the family. You know, and so we're like leaning in that direction right now. Trying to lean in that direction. Because it's so outside the box that people are like, what? They won't come. Parents who come to those things, they're so thankful. At the end of the day, that's the best day of my life is after I get done with some parenting class and I'm teaching them all Trinity, and they come up and they go, Father, I thought this was going to be horrible, but it wasn't that bad. (laughs) Which is a high compliment. You know, from some guy from Rulo, Nebraska who had to drive all the way up here to go through a convalidation marriage prep program. And he says, yeah, I thought this was going to be a waste of time, but it was actually pretty good. Good job, Father. (laughs) All right. So, the section on original sin. When John Paul II addresses original sin, he starts with Matthew chapter 5. And he's going to talk about adultery in the heart. So, Matthew 5 says... You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Christ, the teacher, urges us not to give the kind of human interpretation of the whole law and of the single commandments contained in it that does not build the justice willed by God, the legislator. Okay, so he urges us not to do just a human interpretation of the whole law and single commandments, right? Because that doesn't build the justice willed by God. It doesn't build like right relationships. Okay, it simply is like this is the boundary. If you go outside the boundary, you're in sin. But it doesn't say this is how you love greatly. And so he's going beyond the law in order to help us to love greatly. The question of adhering to the meaning that God put in the commandment, you shall not commit adultery, and of fulfilling the justice that should superabound in man himself. Okay. You shall not commit adultery is one thing, but the justice that should superabound in us in us is another thing. So the morality in which the very meaning of being human is realized, which is at the same time the fulfillment of the law by the superabounding of justice through the subjective vitality, right? the superabounding of justice within the human heart, is formed in the interior perception of values from which duty is born as an expression of conscience, as an answer of one's own personal I. Okay, it's formed in the interior perception of values. 
And so he's going to talk about our interior perception of values, that we understand what is important for our lives. That my value is that I love greatly. That that's something that I value, is loving greatly. And so many times that's not our number one value, to love greatly. We have to be stubborn about loving greatly. We should be stubborn about having joy. And I gave, this was in my homily on the marriage law changing. I was like, we have to be stubborn about having joy in our marriages. Which means if you're unhappy in your marriage, if you feel lonely in your marriage, if you're, you know, if something just feels a little bit off, be stubborn about having joy. You can have joy. Be stubborn about it. Do whatever it takes to have joy. Remove all obstacles to love from your life. Be stubborn about joy. You know, when I was in Rome and I was learning all this stuff, it caused so much agitation. It was horrible. I was reading, I was writing my thesis on human suffering, and I would read this book and it just make me suffer. <laughs> and these authors that are flowing off my tongue right now, like Emmanuel Meunier says this, Gabriel Marcel says this. When I was reading those books, I hated them. I was wanted to throw the book across the room because I would read it and not understand it. It didn't congruent with my experience. I didn't know what was going on. And caused me to go into this depression. And there were some other things that didn't help matters. Um, just personal things in my family life and some other areas. And I started, that's when I started zoning out on TV and like trying to escape a lot and just get by. And I got to a point where I realized that everything I was learning was true. It was possible to have joy because I had this teacher named Jose Noriega who's amazing. He's from Spain. And he would just constantly talk about joy. That's all I talked about. And so he would go through this whole thing. It's all in Italian, but in English it would sound something like this. Like, a man, he's walking down the street and he sees a beautiful woman. She makes an impression on his heart. And then the impression on his heart creates a desire. And the desire moves him. And he goes to the woman and he possesses her. And then he has la joya. (laughs) And I was like, whew, I want to have la joya. And so that's how he would describe falling in love. And I was like, I want that, but I don't have that. And I don't know how to have joy. So I got stubborn about having joy. But it came down to, I had to have a conversation with Bishop Bruswitz in which I was going to say, I got to go to therapy. So my choice is go to therapy and take a risk that I can have joy or stuff my emotions, stuff my feelings, be kind of get through, get my degree, come back and pass on head knowledge and be kind of, you know, miserable. That was my choice. And it's a risk. It was a risk because I had to really think about, okay, if I ask him to go to therapy, I don't know what's going to happen. Because when you're a priest and you have to go to therapy, it's like clerical suicide sometimes. And because oftentimes what we do is like, okay, father's on sabbatical, Nobody knows what he's doing. No, not even his brother priest knows what he's doing. He just disappears, and then he shows back up, and it's like, nothing happened. Don't tell anybody. And he becomes a nice like hospital chaplain somewhere or something like that. And that happens. And, and I didn't want that, but I also didn't want to be miserable for the rest of my life. And like through God's grace, I had a very good conversation with Bishop Bruskowitz, and I told him, like, this is all the stuff that's gone on in my life, in my family life, and some other things, and, and I've been depressed, and I don't have my thesis done that I was supposed to have done a year and a half ago. And, uh, and he was very good. He was very empathetic. He was very compassionate. And, uh, and I ended up going to Alma for two months, and then I spent another month, and then I came, and then he let me go back to Rome and finish my degree. And because of that, like, I am learning to have joy in my life. Um, and we have to be stubborn about that. Because if we're not stubborn about it, then like, life's not worth just getting by. Like, good enough's not good enough when it comes to joy. And good enough's not good enough when it comes to holiness. Good enough's not good enough when it comes to marriages and love. And our people need to, like, 
have that be their primary value. My primary value is that I'm really loving greatly. And I think people want that. But there's this fear of taking the risk. There's a fear of taking a risk. And that fear is always from the evil one. You know, the evil one puts that fear in our heart. He puts that doubt in our heart that says, I doubt that God really wants to give me joy. God loves everybody except for me. Or he only loves me because he has to love everybody. But that's not the gospel message. It's not what we believe. And so we talk about, we're going to talk about like the heart. That's why he talks so much about the heart. And through our subjective vitality, it's not just about like conforming myself to these rules, but living the superbounding justice. He says the casuistry of the books of the Old Testament, which was preoccupied with investigating what, according to external criteria, constituted such an act of the body, and was at the same time oriented towards fighting adultery, opened various legal loopholes for adultery. So casuistry is part of moral theology. So when we talk about casuistry, there was a time period in the church where we just, casuistry was very big. And so casuistry is like when you sit around and you say things like, it's like teaching high school. You say things like, what if somebody is, uh, I don't know, I used to say I'm going to write a book called Why Can't I Marry a Gay Paraplegic? Because girls will ask questions like that. Um, And nobody thinks that's funny. You don't (laughs) teach high school. Sorry. So they ask questions that are like impossible. Okay, so what if this person does X, Y, Z? Is that a sin? And so we use casuistry in order to figure out like what's a sin or what's not a sin. So if I drink a Starbucks coffee, am I somehow participating in the evil of abortion? People ask that question. You know, because Starbucks contributes to Planned Parenthood, or somebody just told me yesterday, like, McDonald's contributes to Planned Parenthood, and so they don't go to McDonald's. And that's their prerogative. They can do that. And we could have that discussion if you want, but it's a really long discussion. And it's really kind of complicated. But the point is, casuistry is about, like, saying, in this case it's adultery, in this case it's not adultery. Now, this still exists very much in the church, and it's what the whole annulment process, like, really does is the annulment process. is a process by which we discern whether or not something was actually a marriage. And so it leaves room for legal loopholes. And when we look at things just in terms of the law, we fall into that mentality of looking for loopholes. So when we're just concerned about law, we look for loopholes. And then we just get concerned about staying in the bounds. Okay, for a long time in the church, there was a bishop who came and lectured us when I was at the JP2 Institute. And he, he, always, he said this about five times in his lecture. When I was in training to be a priest, the only marriage class we had was canon law marriage. Right? Canon law marriage is the study of what makes marriage, what doesn't make marriage. When is a marriage valid? When is it invalid? How can you possibly do an annulment? That's canon law marriage. So what you end up with is simply like marriage is between a man and a woman, they both have to be free to marry, they can't be brother and sister, they can't be an uncle and an aunt. If you're first cousins, you can get a dispensation from the bishop as long as it's legal in the state that you live in. And like You learn all that stuff, but they didn't learn what love was, or what it means that marriage is a sacrament, or how to love greatly. Like That wasn't part of the training. And so we, too, as a church, sometimes we fall into that, like, looking for legal loopholes. And all we can, are concerned about is if it's a marriage or not a marriage. You know, and sometimes in our pastoral care, it comes across that way. Like, is it okay for me to leave my husband? And, the, you know, we always want to save a marriage. We always want to preserve a marriage. You know, but sometimes our response is just, like, we have these criteria. Well, are you getting beaten? No, then you have to stay with him. Never mind the fact that there's all kinds of emotional abuse going on and other things going on that they are too embarrassed to tell their pastor about. And so those kind of falling into legal loopholes can get us into trouble. And that's what was happening at the time of Jesus. That's why the Pharisees say, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any reason whatsoever? Well, Moses allowed us to divorce for this reason or that reason. And Jesus says from the beginning it was not so. He's calling them to something higher. 
Jesus speaks to every man. One can know the positive commandment, but can also have it written in his heart. Okay, the heart is the dimension of humanity with which the sense of the meaning of the human body and the order of this sense is directly linked. So in for the Jews, the heart is the seat of human personality. For the Greeks, the intellect is the seat of human personality. So when he speaks of the heart, it speaks of this integrated personality. So when it's written on my heart, it's integrated. It's more than just something I know in my head, but something I believe in the core of my being. In the core of my being, the spousal and generative meanings of the body, right? Those are laws written on our hearts. The fact that we're created for relationship, the fact that those relationships are meant to be fruitful, it's written on the human heart. So the standard adultery is standard adultery. Adultery in the heart, to look at a woman to desire her. Right? It signifies clearly a defined interior act. And we're dealing with a desire directed, in this case, by the man toward a woman who is not his wife. For the sake of uniting with her as if she were, that is, to use once again the words of Genesis 2.24, as if they were one flesh. So when Jesus speaks of adultery in the heart, we're talking about a desire for a woman for the sake of uniting with her as if she were his wife. Okay, that's what we're speaking of. And I think this definition is a good definition. Like, when does an impure thought become a mortal sin? Like, this is casuistry. This is like, okay, we need to sort of go through all these scenarios. You know, because sometimes impure thoughts are just impure thoughts. Sometimes kids might think about like a magazine ad that they saw that was, I mean, it just might pop into their head and then they think they committed a mortal sin. And I don't know if that's true. But looking at a woman to desire her so as to be united with her as if she were his wife in order to become one flesh, like that's adultery in the heart. And so while we safeguard against impurity, we also have to be attentive to just having normal conversations about curiosities that are happening with our kids. And this is especially is what I would say to mothers and fathers is like they have to have these conversations with their kids. The desire is expressed through the sense of sight. And these words apply ethically to both men and women. Right? Women can look at a man with lust as well in her heart. So concupiscence is the word that we use for the effect of original sin in our lives. Right? All that is in the world, the concupiscence of the flesh, the concupiscence of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. And the world passes away with its concupiscence. But the one who does the will of God will remain in eternity. 1 John 2, 16-17. So in 1 John, he talks about this triple concupiscence. The concupiscence of the flesh, of the eyes, and the pride of life. Right? And John Paul II will focus in on these three levels of concupiscence. He says, in fact, it is only a consequence of sin as a fruit of the breaking of the covenant with God in the human heart in man's innermost being that the world of Genesis became the world of the Joanine words the place and the source of concupiscence right? in John's writings the world always refers to the world of concupiscence or the world of sin so in John's gospel Jesus will say things like they don't belong to the world any more than I belong to the world and when he speaks of the, of the world, he means the world of sin, the world of concupiscence, where we experience concupiscence of the flesh, of the eyes, and the pride of life. I think it'll come up in a second. <clears throat> it should only be observed that the biblical description itself seems to highlight particularly the key moment in which, in man's heart, doubt is cast on the gift. Okay, so when I use my little diagram and I put doubt, right, it's consistent with what John Paul II says. Right, it's doubt is cast on the gift. 
And when doubt is cast on the gift, then we fall into this triple concupiscence. And we become alienated from original love. Adam says, I was ashamed because I was naked, so I hid myself. With his shame about his own nakedness, the man seeks to cover the true origin of fear by indicating the effect so as to not, so as not to name the cause. Okay, so he's ashamed about his nakedness. I was ashamed because I was naked. That's the effect. He doesn't admit to the fact that he ate from the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He doesn't admit his sin. He hides the effect. And he covers the effect. You know, this happens a lot in our own spiritual lives. In our own spiritual lives, there's some like deep sin that we have, but we talk about the surface level thing. And we don't get to the core. It's the God who says, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree? So our Lord penetrates beyond the effect to the cost. And our Lord meets him there. Okay, Our Lord meets him there. Oftentimes when I'm giving spiritual direction to somebody who struggles with particular sin in their life, I'm just going to shut this door. Might be heresy police out there. I'm just kidding. When somebody is struggling with particular sin in their life, I'll have them meditate on this passage from Genesis um, where they go and they hide in their sin especially when there's a lot of shame attached to it. So, it might be somebody who's struggling with impurity and they're falling and falling and falling and they're going to confession every week. And I say, okay, so I want you to go and meditate on this scripture. And in that meditation, what we want to like experience is the fact that, okay, I've done this and now I feel like I want to hide from God. I want to withdraw from God. And so I meditate on, I'm just like sitting behind a tree and I'm feeling empty inside. I feel like I'm unlovable. And then what happens? God comes to look for me. Right? That's what happens. That's the way the narrative goes. Is we commit some sin and we hide from God because we don't believe that he's going to be capable of encountering us in our sin. And God comes to look for me. And so the God encounters him. And then they enter into a dialogue. And Adam says, I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. So Adam does not say what he doesn't want God to know. Right? He's still trying to keep something from God's presence. He doesn't want to bring to the Lord the fact that he ate the fruit. He just says, I was afraid because I was naked. Which reveals the fact that he does not believe that God will accept him if he knows that he ate the fruit. And so what does God do? He speaks past the avoidance into the heart. And he says... Who told you you were naked, you've eaten from the tree. As if to say, I know that you ate from the tree and I came to find you anyways. Like, I love you anyways. And then he promises to restore him immediately after that. It's God who who makes clothes and gives it to them to replace the fig leaves. And then he promises a redeemer. All of that happens in chapter 3. And we all need to open our hearts to have that experience of God came looking for me in my shame. Because otherwise shame remains the greatest obstacle to the spiritual life. Because shame leads us to go to a prayer and pray the prayer of the Pharisee and not the prayer of the tax collector. 
Right? The Pharisee goes and he says, Thank God I'm not like these bad people. This is all the good things I do for you, God. The tax collector just says who he is. Have mercy on me, a sinner. And that relationship that we have with our Lord has to take place in honesty and in truth. It has to take place in truth. And so better to be true and honest in prayer than to try to hide what's going on in our hearts. And Father Barak said to me, it was like two years ago, I was talking to him, and he made a passing comment that just stuck with me. And he, what he said was that people have to admit that they love their sin more than Jesus. Which means, like, you go into prayer and you say, I love food more than you. That's where I'm at. Because if we start in that honesty, it opens up the space for God to come and find us and speak the truth into our hearts. If we do not open ourselves in honesty to the Lord, He will not transform our hearts. And our Lord wants access to that part of your life that you don't think anybody is interested in. He wants access to that part of your heart that you're afraid anybody's going to find out about. Because all of us in some way are curled up behind a tree and we're like, I hope that God doesn't come. It's what we do in our shame. It's what we do in our households. Sometimes. Like, if my room's a mess all the time and I haven't let the cleaning lady clean it, I don't even want to, like, encounter her in the hallway because she knows that my room's a mess. <laughs> I got shame and I avoid people. You know, and shame becomes a great deterrent to relationship, most especially with our Lord. Man suffers damage in what belongs to nature itself. The threefold concupiscence, it does not correspond to the fullness of that image but to the damage, deficiencies, limitations that appeared with sin. Okay, it's a lack that plunges its roots into the original depth of the human spirit. Okay? It like this threefold concupiscence, it just kind of all of creation becomes distorted and it distorts us in the way we see ourselves and see God and see the relationships between people. Okay, so at this point, there's a radical change in original nakedness, right? Original nakedness was the body reveals the person, and the body is transparent and penetrable and vulnerable. And now there's this rupture there. So the body was from the beginning marked, so to speak, as the visible factor of transcendence, right? From the beginning, the body revealed the fact that we're open to God who is above us. In virtue of which man as person surpasses the visible world of living beings. In this sense, the human body was from the beginning a faithful witness and a perceptible verification of man's original solitude in the world. Although also through masculinity and femininity as a transparent component of reciprocal giving in the communion of persons. That's what the body was that we've talked about the last two days. Now man in some way loses the original certainty of the image of God expressed in his body. So now I'm not sure that my body reveals the image of God. I'm not sure that God has access to me. I don't experience myself as a son or a daughter. And he also loses his acceptance of the visible world. God says, cursed is the ground because of you. When he says, I was afraid, it also expresses the awareness of being defenseless and a sense of insecurity about his bodily structure in the face of the process of nature that operate with an inevitable determinism. Okay, so that's sometimes called cosmic shame. It's this idea of, like, that we lose sense of who we are in the world, our place in the world. Okay, imminent shame refers to shame as manifested in human interiority. Okay, relative shame is shame in the face of another person in a relationship. A specific difficulty in sensing the human essentiality of one's own body. Right, we start to have a difficulty in 
realizing the, how essential our body is to who we are. There's also a fracture in the interior or a rupture of the original spiritual and bodily unity. Okay, so there's a rupture in our body-soul composite. We start to see our body as separate from our spirit. So the body is no longer subject to the spirit, but it carries within it a constant hotbed of resistance against the spirit and threatens in some way man's unity as a person. Shame also has a sexual character. Because the sphere of sexuality brings to light the imbalance springing from concupiscence and especially from the concupiscence of the body. Right? So the conjugal life of the man and the woman was like the fullest expression of the communion of persons. It was the place where the man realizes who he is as a man. The woman realizes who she is as a woman. And they come to know themselves also as a father and a mother. Right? So the sexual embrace was the height of those original experiences. And so the result of original sin is that like shame enters into every aspect of our life, but especially in the sphere of sexuality. You know, most people who really suffer from chronic shame, that chronic shame is also connected with some kind of violation of that person that took place in a sexualized way. So man ceases to be above the world of living beings. The heart holds both desire and shame. The heart, by closing itself to what comes from the Father, opens itself to what comes from the world. St. Augustine would often talk about like our choice between the things of heaven and the things of earth. And so rather than this transcendent opening... To the Father, we end up opening to the world. And things in the world become our refuge. And instead of taking refuge in God, we can take refuge in other things, or we hide in those things. And people today just have a lot of hiding places. There's a lot more hiding places today than there was in the past. Right? In the past, you couldn't hide on media so much. There was one TV in the house. That was it. Three channels. One TV, nothing's on. Play cards. Today, there's like 100 channels to hide in. And we didn't have phones. And we didn't have Snapchat. So, anyways, that's part of my technology briefing. From the party line phone to Snapchat in five minutes. <clears throat> So there's two meanings of shame. So somebody asked the other day about if there's a positive aspect to shame. So shame itself, it's a threat to the value of the body, but it also preserves the value of the body. Okay, it can preserve the body from being used or objectified by another. Original communion is overturned. The body ceases to be free from suspicion. Or ceases to be free from suspicion. As if the original function of the body were called into doubt. Sexual complementarity is now seen as mutual opposition. So instead of seeing somebody as another I, I now see them as a threat to my being. So that shame invading the man-woman relation as a whole was manifested through the imbalance of the original meaning of bodily unity. That is, through the imbalance of the body as a specific substratum of the communion of persons. Okay, it threw the original meaning of the body into imbalance. And so now that original meaning of the body doesn't inform the communion of persons. And the communion of persons becomes, I need this person to fill up what's missing in my life. And I only need a part of this person. We can also have shame about our own body. 
John Paul II talks about the difficulty in identifying oneself with one's own body. Not only in the sphere of one's own subjectivity, but even more so in regard to the subjectivity of the other human being, of woman for man and man for woman. Okay, it becomes difficult for us to identify with who we are, identify with our own body. We can be ashamed of our own body. Right, so when we're talking about gender identity and that sort of identity confusion can be about a rejection of my own body. And as shame enters in, it creates this opposition between a man and woman. It says, your desire will be for your husband, but he will dominate you. And this refers not only about conjugal life, but it refers to the whole context of their relationship. There can be this desire for the other, but he will dominate you. And even in that desire of the woman for her husband, that desire is a disordered desire. It can also be her desire to dominate him, or to control him, or to manipulate him. We no longer refer to male and female, but male or female. Because we lose track of the fact that men come to discover who they are in relation to women, and women discover who they are in relation to men. And it's all threatened by the insatiability of that union and unity. So, he uses this phrase, the insatiability of the gift. And so... Like that original union between men and women that we talked about, right? It's like the most fulfilling thing in human experience. But when God is evicted from our hearts, then that desire for communion becomes insatiable. Right? It can never be answered. It can never be quenched. It can only be quenched by divine life. And so we try to quench that thirst for communion, unity, being loved with all kinds of other things. You know, we try to quench it with food, with sex, with work, with busyness. Whatever it is that we think that gives us value. You know, but our value, our ultimate value comes from the relationship we have with our Lord. Our value comes from the beginning. It comes from the fact that you are my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. You are my beloved daughter in whom I'm well pleased. And so, like, there's this phrase that we often use, which is, like, God made you with a God-shaped hole in your heart. And I don't, I don't really like to use that phrase because if we go back to the beginning, if we follow John Paul II's schema, God made you in union with him. That was it. The God-shaped hole in our heart comes after we evict God from our heart. Then we have this God-shaped hole in our heart. And it needs to be filled only with God, but we start to do with other things. Because God made us all with a God-shaped hole in our hearts kind of makes it sound like he made us defective. No, but he didn't make us defective. He made us for union with him. And so this whole like schema follows that ordering of like this doubt about God wants the good for me, shame enters into our life, and then shame corrupts all these relationships. Um... So going back to, I'm going to just go back to my little diagram here and I'm going to tell one story and then we'll take a break. All right, which is, so this dynamic, you know, I talked about like why I like to use this because it follows a certain narrative. Um, Because this is, these are all theological truths, but our life fits into this theological narrative And conversion is a process by which we find ourselves within Christ's narrative. That's when we connect with the story, when we find ourselves in the story. And narrative is very important for our life. It's important for discipleship. It's important for preaching the gospel. That's why Jesus taught in parables all the time, so that we could find ourselves in the story. And so this story is also the story of our lives. And so I use examples from my childhood, like... I could tell you when I lost my identity as a son. Or I started to doubt that God wanted the good for me. 
and it's like my fishing story. So my fishing story goes kind of like this. When I was about four, I asked my dad, can we go fishing? And he said, when you're older. Yes. Okay. So he said, when you're older. So I'm thinking in my head, I'm starting to imagine my possible future, which is when I'm older, we're going to go fishing. And I'm waiting and I'm waiting and I'm waiting. And then finally I get up the nerve to ask my dad, can we go fishing? I didn't ask him, can we go fishing? No, I went up to him and I said, am I older? What are you talking about? You said we go fishing when I'm older. Oh, yeah. Okay, we'll go. Great. So I'm thinking about fishing. Get up early on a Saturday. We're going to go out on a boat. We're going to be out there all day fishing with my dad. It's going to be great. Just me and my dad. So dad came home from work on a Thursday and said we're going fishing at 4.30 in the afternoon. Okay, so we got in the car, got our fishing rods, went to this place where there was a fishing farm where they had these wells. And at the bottom of the wells, they starved the fish. And you drop your line into the well, you pull out a fish. We were home in 45 minutes. Fishing with my dad. So what did I learn? I learned that when my dad makes a promise to me, I need to like lower my expectations a couple notches. And if I really want to go fishing, I'm going to have to do it by myself. This is what I learned implicitly from that. Now, I love my dad. I love my father. My father did his best for me. But that was my experience. So did I ever, 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 ever ask to go fishing again? No. I didn't. You know, the other story I could use is my dog story. Like, when I was four, we moved towns. And when we moved towns, my dad got, my parents got me a dog. And I think they got me the dog because there were a lot of people that were close to me in my life from my childhood in this town. And then we moved to another town and I wasn't going to see them again. So they got me a dog. Because that's what you should do. You get him a dog. The dog will love him. So I got this dog. It's a little Cocker Spaniel dog named Casey. And I love that dog. And the dog loved me. But the dog didn't love everybody in the house. So one morning I woke up. And I think it was a Saturday, I was going down to watch cartoons, and I walked into the kitchen, and I just caught out of the corner of my eye that the dog dish wasn't where the dog dish was supposed to be. So I was like, huh, that's weird. <clears throat> and I start wandering around the kitchen, and I start looking for my dog, and I go downstairs, I'm looking, and I start calling my dog, and I like went outside and took a lap, came back in, started going through the cupboards and the cabinets, looking for dog food, um... There's no dog food, no dog dish, no dog water. There's no sign that we ever had a dog. And so my mom calls me up and she says, Shawnee, because that would make it better. Daddy took Casey to the farm where he can run around with the other dogs and be happy. And I was crushed by that. Because that was like the one thing in my life that I felt like was for me. And then there was no dog. And so what did I learn? I learned that I'm not supposed to have anything that's good. And I really think when I reflect back on my life, I stopped expressing my desire for good things at that point. Like We went to get a new dog. And my parents were like, well, which one do you like? I said, I don't care. <coughs> Like, I don't even want a new dog because you killed my dog. Because um, I asked to go to the farm a couple times. And, uh, and they always made up an excuse not to go to the farm to visit my dog. So, so anyway, so as a kid, like, what did I learn? I just learned that life is about suffering. You're not supposed to have good things. You're not supposed to have what you want. Like, it's the gospel of the suck. That's what I call it. Right? It goes like, God created the world, you're born in the world, life's supposed to suck. If you persevere in the suck, at the end of your life, you get a big prize. Yay, I want to be a Christian. <laughs> but a lot of people have that. Like A lot of people have that because in the narrative of our own life, we have things that cause distortions about our image of God. And, and that's not God's plan for our lives. That's not God's plan for our lives. And we need to be able to proclaim that. That's not God's plan for our life. It's not God's plan for your life. God's plan is that he enters into that, life, and he enters into that pain and transforms it. 
You know, so like I've actually done this this year where I pray through going fishing with my dad and what happens, like we start to leave and I'm feeling all rejected and I'm feeling like I'm not supposed to have anything good and all those emotions are coming to the surface and then everything just kind of freeze frames. Jesus comes in, grabs my hand and we go out on a boat and we go fishing and then he brings me back and he says to me, like, I will always have time for you. I will always make time for you. I will always be here for you. I will always love you. I'm sorry this happened to you. I'll never abandon you. I'll always love you. And he responds to the pain that led to that belief that I'm not supposed to have anything good. You know, and that's what our Lord wants to do in those times in our life where that identity as a son or daughter was ruptured. And sometimes there's multiple things. Like I prayed that through my dog story. I prayed it through some other things that happened in my childhood. Um, and every time it just kind of gets a little bit more comfortable. You know, and we start to have an experience of God that rewrites the history of our life. Because the reality is it's not just like a psychological exercise to do that. Because the reality is Jesus was there when I went fishing with my dad and I felt alone and abandoned. Because our Lord has always been walking with me. Our Lord has always been walking with you. So the reality is he was there. It's a way of going into prayer and saying to Jesus, what do you remember about this time in my life? Because our Lord has a memory of your life. And his memory is not the same as your memory. And asking him to show us what he remembers about our life, that's where he can start to provide for us everything that's been missing along the way. And we can start to be healed in our identity as sons and daughters. And we can give up the gospel of the suck for the joy of the gospel. You know, which is what we're called to proclaim. So, all right. We will take, uh, take 10 minutes and, um, and we'll be back. Thanks.